Montessori Moment. I am your host, Liz Strong. It's been quite some time since our last episode because, as my name change suggests, I got married and I have also started a new job with the education team at our school. This episode will be the first part of a short series about Montessori Lower Elementary programs. This topic is particularly interesting to me uh, because as a primary trained Montessori guide, I don't know very much about the elementary program or childhood development during those years. So to learn more, I was able to interview one of our heads of school that has a lower elementary program at his campus, and I'm going to play that interview for you now. So today I have with me Dr. Eric Daniels, who started at Laporte as a curriculum consultant and then joined as a teacher and curriculum developer and is now head of school. Um, Before joining Laporte, he worked for over 12 years in... um, teaching at the university level, and so he has a lot of experience in education and in what makes great students. So I guess I want to start by... Hi, Eric. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Yeah, I want to start by asking you about um, your experience teaching older students and what qualities you found made a good student. Yeah, it's interesting. College students, it's funny, when I first came to Laporte and told my colleagues that I was leaving academia to teach middle school students and and upper elementary students. I got a lot of responses that people thought, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Why do you want to go teach children that age? That's the hardest age, et cetera. But one of the reasons that I was attracted to it was exactly what I thought was the question that you're asking. What What makes a good student at the college age, 18 to 21? What made a good student to me was someone who was adaptable, curious, uh, resilient in a certain way, intellectually resilient. You know, they were able to challenge their ideas, try on new ideas, experiment, not just have a whole set of, uh, of assumptions and ideas and algorithms that they just plotted new ideas into, but that they could really explore. And what occurred to me, the reason why I actually came down to from, you know, from older uh, adults really to children is that I realized that so many of those traits about what made a good student were already set. So when in college, I I used to call it that they're already fully cooked in a way. It's a little bit late. Yeah. Yeah. It's very flattering to be a college professor. You know, you have 120 students sitting there writing every word you say and, and reciting it back on exams. But it's also very frustrating because you don't feel the effect that you do with childhood education where you see their development. I mean, in college, it's two, three times a week for 75 minutes, 50 minutes a shot for 15 weeks. And then maybe you see those students again on campus. But they know what, I mean, especially in the classes where you get to know them a little, they know what kind of career they want. They have their basic thinking methodology down. They have their orientation of the world. They're at most using you as a purveyor of knowledge. You're, you're a holder of specialized knowledge and you give it to them. And that's, and that's great because it's cool to learn really interesting deep things about certain fields and then have people who want to join that group of people that know that. But as an educator, as somebody who was primarily concerned about that development of thinking, it just wasn't satisfying to me. But those traits were what I, what I really hooked into. I was like, well, how do, what differentiates? Why do some students that I have have that? And why do other students struggle so much with that? Mm-hmm. And that's what actually pushed me. I thought, you know, when I was in graduate school, I thought about teaching at younger ages, but it was really always like, oh, I could teach high school or I could teach college because it's like, oh, yeah, it's good. And then it was only in, uh, I guess I was about halfway through that stint of being a, a professor when I first visited Laporte to do some consulting. And I remember distinctly 
uh, visiting the old campus in Mission Viejo and uh, watching a couple of classes at, at, the, at the adolescent level or at the uh, upper elementary level, but then also going and taking a look at the Montessori classrooms and just being astounded, like looking at them and thinking, wow, like what is going on here? You know, this is because it's funny once one, I mean, I, I used to joke with people that my whole career I had spent with 18 to 21 year olds. I mean, I was a college student first. And then I was a graduate student, so I was basically on a college campus. And then I got a job, so I was on a college campus. So my whole life in my 18 to, you know, whatever, too old now, but, uh, like, I was just on a college campus. And so my whole world was 18 to 21-year-olds. Um, and then when I came back, I didn't have a picture of what children that age were like. I had this vague memory from my own childhood or just, you know, I didn't have children of my own. Most of my friends didn't have children yet. So it was like exploring a new world. Mm-hmm. And seeing like, oh wow, that's what six-year-olds are like, or, or that's what you know. Was just, but then, of course, realizing after my experience, that isn't what all of them are like. You know, that that's, a, that's there's something special going on here. There's something different going on here. And then that's really where I got so interested in looking at the roots of what makes a good student by the time they're eighteen or, or twenty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Something that I think. I don't talk about very much, but I came to Montessori from kind of the academic side. Um, and so when I did my practice teaching during my training was the first time that I'd spent any time with any children wow. because I was like 24 wow. years old. Yeah. And so like none of my friends had kids really. Yeah. And yeah. like, I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings. And like my cousins are about the same age as me. Yeah. I've never spent any time with yeah. any children. I was terrified. I was like, I hope that they like me. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I had I, I'd obviously visited Laporte uh, when I was consulting, and then I visited again when I originally agreed to come work at Laporte. But it, I had agreed. I think it was about May or June. It was probably May when I agreed, and so I had already committed to another year at Clemson at the time where where I was working, and. You know, my program director there would have let me out of it and, and said, oh, we'll find someone to teach your classes. But I felt this obligation to the students, many of whom I knew from having had them in previous classes. So I actually had a whole year to think about the difference between what college was like because I knew I was coming to Laporte before I actually got here. And then when I arrived the next summer, uh, I jumped right into it. I started early in the summer uh, and started working with children that were in the summer camps. And I remember thinking, and, and it was lower elementary and upper elementary students. And I just remember that the first few weeks, I was just so astounded that so many of my assumptions about what children were like at that age were completely checked. The sense of uh, showiness that a lot of uh, a lot of the young girls had, like they were like, watch me on the monkey bars, watch me climb this mm-hmm. wall, watch me do this. And I was like, oh, wow. They're like, they, it's not like they're showing off, but they're just, they like the idea of, I have accomplished this. Let me show you. Mm-hmm. And I just, it never occurred to me that that would happen. And then, you know, now I sit in this office here at the Spectrum campus and I see uh, the children on the monkey bars. It's this fascination. There's this age where the monkey bars become like the most important thing that they do. It's very serious. Yeah. Very serious. Oh no. They have, they have gloves. They come over and they wipe dirt on their hands so that they don't get too sweaty. They're very, and they have patterns that they do. It's, and I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I would have never been able to predict that. But once you come and you observe how children actually, you know, behave, um, it really opens your eyes to that perspective in Montessori of you have to be first an observer and then think about the education rather than come to the children with this idea of education mm-hmm. and just impose it on them. Yeah. Well, and you you studied American intellectual history. Is yes. that what you were working on? Um, is that the kind of courses that you were teaching at the university level? Uh, yeah, kind I of, was. Sort of? Yeah, because I mean, when so when you came here, you were doing science mostly. Right. Right. So my so American intellectual history was a 
it was something of a, I don't want to call it a, a default, but it was the way that I could do my PhD with as broad uh, an area of interest as possible. That would be like acceptable in academia. Academia, of course, you know, you do your PhD, it's on this very narrow, narrow topic. And I knew the job market was very tough. And I, I tried to figure out a way to uh, design my dissertation so that it was as saleable as possible on the academic market. So it was about American political history from an intellectual perspective. So like, what are the what are the deeper philosophic ideas that are going on in the political culture at this time? And it was in a time period in the antebellum period that stretches. So you can kind of be a Civil War historian, but you can kind of be an uh, you know an early American historian, etc. Uh, but that perspective, my advisor, uh, who I really deeply respected, Paul Boyer, was an intellectual cultural historian. And what really inspired me about his work is that he he had really really well respected books on everything from the Salem witch trials to uh, book censorship in the United States in the 1920s, to the response to the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. To like, he just had this breadth of interests and ability to, to think about those things. For me, intellectual history was always, the particular topic in intellectual history I'm studying is mm-hmm. less important to me as the idea that you're, I'm looking at how ideas develop in, in a culture or in a subculture. So the science piece was always, I was always interested in science and mm-hmm. I never pursued it past college. Well, and especially I think American intellectual history is inextricably tied to the development of modern science. Yeah, and how yeah, yeah. And, and the role that it plays. I mean, it's funny that my, my advisor, Paul Boyer, his course, you know, normally they would divide it sort of like at the Civil War, American history before the Civil War, American history after the Civil War. His, his course was American intellectual history, 1859 to the present. So 1859 is publication of Origin of the Species, uh, because that was such a watershed moment in American intellectual history. So there, yeah, there are all these interesting tie-ins, um, and and it was just a chance to get back to that interest of mine that I had navigated around. And I tell this funny story when I was a ninth grader, I as part of school, you know, I went to public high school. As part of school, we had to do a career day, mm. and. It was something where you couldn't, you had to shadow somebody. Like you had to pick a profession and shadow someone, but it couldn't be your parent. So they gave you, like they took away the easy out of just going with mom or dad, you know. And I, for whatever reason, I don't even remember exactly why now, but I either resented this assignment or I just didn't find it interesting or whatever. And so I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. And then it was like last minute, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to turn this in. What am I going to do? So I, I effectively just, I was, I just chose something. So I chose... I called up my uh, middle school science teacher and I shadowed for a day as a middle school science teacher. And then it took me, you know, 20 something years before I finally got back to doing what to I doing clearly, that. I clearly had been meant to do <laughs> from, you know, age 14. Um, yeah. So, it, so it's kind of a funny difference for you from teaching the 18 to 20 something. Olds, yeah. And then coming and teaching like middle school science here. Yeah. Um, but you're potentially working with kind of a different population. Um, as I assume a lot of your students went through the Montessori curriculum here before right. coming to you. Right, yeah. So do you find that those traits you were telling me about, do you find that those are well supported by Montessori? How like how do those feature in the students you're receiving in your science class? Yeah, so one of the things that I think was most clear, and because one of the, it's interesting, in, in our upper elementary and junior high program, it's usually pretty obvious which students came all the way through the Montessori and which ones have joined later. I mean, it's easy enough to figure that out just by talking to them or seeing when they get admitted to the school. But it's also clear just in that in that intellectual disposition, 
Um, the Montessori kids have a level of curiosity about the world, especially in the science realm. You know, that the, mm-hmm. the, the, there's this comfort with the natural world and this comfort with trying to explore and interact with the natural world as a as a basis for for drawing out ideas rather than just going to a book. Not that, you know, books are fine, but in terms of science, it's it's a real comfort with the world that I think has to be rooted, say, in the early, the lower elementary, the botany materials and the, the great stories, and then all the way down into the primary with the real interaction with the world in the sensory development that gives children, by the time they reach upper elementary, junior high, that gives them an orientation to science that it's it's about seeing for myself. It's about understanding it. It's about figuring out the ideas in a way that I can check in reality Mm -hmm. um, more than it is, okay, give me a model or give me a theory and I just remember it and then I plug the right things into it and then we move on. Um, So that was clear. And then it's fun also just to, you know, I remember I was teaching an eighth grade class. We were investigating Faraday's idea of the chemical history of of a candle, which is all about just really observation based uh, investigation of fire and we were talking about it and one and the students were discussing the shape of the flame on a candle and one of the students said it's an ovoid and I was like okay only you know what <laughs> what normal 13 14 year old uses that that hasn't done the geometric solids you know right. it's just some of the stuff and to them it's completely natural that they have this vocabulary to describe uh, these things versus and maybe he even said an oblong ovoid. I don't know. It was like something like that. And just some of those some of those things that some you see language. Yeah, that they pick up that seems so natural to them, but which in the eighteen to twenty one year old population, there's either a vagueness about the way that students I mean, especially in their writing, you see this that that they just they write a whole two page, three page essay that doesn't say much, versus being very to the point and very focused and and very precise. Uh, that the Montessori students that I've had, you know, that I know have come through all the way. Um, and it's, it's really that curiosity, though. It's that, it's that orientation to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about the students and their curiosity and them trying to figure out how things work and really interacting with their environment, um, that made me think about that kind of idea of them finding out for themselves as one of the many manifestations of their independence. And so in primary... We talk a lot about functional independence, right. like right. how to be like a functional, yeah. become a, yeah. slowly become a functional person. Right. Um, and I don't know very much about elementary. So what kind of independence do you see them working on a lot? Um, well, so one of so the... So they're trying yeah. to find out like what's going on. Right. So, yeah. So one of the things, I mean, one of the, you know, developmental, so this is Montessori's second plane of development. One of the developmental signs in the second plane that parents notice that, that it's, when having conversations with parents, it's really easy to talk to them about the differences in elementary versus primary if they've been, you know, if they've been in a Montessori school because they can see certain markers. Now, of course, Montessori pointed out that there's this very natural one of the, the baby teeth start falling out and, and, there are, there are, and then the growth starts to even out, whereas you know, up through six years old, children grow in spurts and then they kind of even out, all these different things. But intellectually, the difference is that they start to become more oriented not to the independence that you're talking about, the functional independence, but now in the independence of knowing things. So they, it's when they start asking the why questions all the time, the persistent, but why, but why, but why, you know, where there's this endless chain of, of questions that they want to know the next reason or how does this work. It becomes a, a, a turning outward to the world and a realization that the children have that the adults in their life 
there's a, there's an enormous wide world out there of things that are classified, things that are organized intellectually, and they don't yet have part of it. They don't they don't yet know it. So a lot of those things that are set up in primary really become the basis for understanding that like plant and animal classification. That there's a there's there's a whole wide variety of these things, but there's also a system by which we can understand them. And uh, there's uh, a whole world out there of professions. And so there's a whole thing that, you know, building out of the primary where they can kind of see what the professions are. They now can explore these in a really meaningful way. And then the big thing in elementary that, uh, that differentiates it is also the great stories. So in, in elementary, starting in lower elementary, uh, every year the students have an opportunity to hear these great stories. The coming of life, or the, well, the coming of the universe, the coming of life, the coming of man. Uh, I'm going to miss one because I'm trying to recite them off in my head. Uh, the story of language, the story of math. There should be a sixth one. Uh, the universe, the, maybe it's the coming of the universe, the coming of the earth, the coming of life, the coming of man, the story of language and the story of math. And what these are, they're, it's essentially what the best sort of interpretation of this that I've heard is it's a series of concentric circles moving from you and your community locally to the world, the universe, the, you know, the, the animal world, etc. And these are integrators. These are ways that the children get the big, big, broad story that throughout the rest of the year, when they're doing follow-up work, when they take a botany lesson and they do follow-up work, or when they are doing a geography lesson and they're doing follow-up work by researching a country, uh, or they're doing a science experiment and learning from the coming of the earth, they learn about the different layers of the earth, and then they also learn some of the basic physics concepts about solids and gases and liquids. And this is something that helps them see that knowledge is ultimately all integrated. Mm-hmm. That knowing something about this aspect of the world over here relates to this other thing. You may not know what the relation is. You may not know what that connection is. But you know it's connected in an interesting way that you can then find out. Yeah. So the independence becomes, it's more of a, it's in a sense it's a little bit more of a cognitive independence. I think that's cultivated in the elementary years. That the the students can now that they're functioning, you know, individuals, they now have this ability to get their own independent knowledge of the world. Before it was, how do, you know, how does this work or why does this happen or whatever? They just trust adults. You know, primary children are, are okay with the idea that stuff works around them. Just tell me how it works. Yeah. Just tell me. Just tell me. Like, it's just like, you know, they don't, they don't get into a, a car and say, how does this car work in the, in the kind of way that a, an elementary yeah. child would, where you wouldn't even get to your destination before that you're trying to explain internal combustion to them and like all these other things. The elementary child is yeah. true and brief. Yeah, Done exactly. With true and yeah. Brief. It's now it's, it's, I want to know the reasons show me. And it really is. It's, it's that independence of thought and I need to see the evidence. I, I remember, I guess he was probably nine or so. So right in the middle of the elementary years, uh, he had this, phrase, uh, this was actually before I came to the port, but there was this child that I think is really emblematic of that age. He would say to people when they would explain things to him, he would say, that's a nice story, but where's your proof? Because <laughs> he, he really did everything. Yeah. Otherwise, it was just a story. It was just, okay, that's a nice story, but like, show me. Where, let me grasp what that really is going on. I don't want you to just tell me. And that's really what the elementary curriculum is built around, is to get them the tools so that they can do those investigations and gain that independence. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember when I was in my training, we would when the the primary teachers were like on one side of the building and the elementary teachers were on the other side of the building, and they would they have we'd have like pure practice days, and we would like switch and be each other's children, and we would get to sit in on them practicing the great stories. Yeah, and it was yeah. so cool. It was yeah, 
very exciting. And I yeah. think it's nice for a primary teacher to know just like a little bit about elementary because then when you have those kids that are in your program right. that start losing teeth and start being like, but why? But how? But yeah. show me. But yeah. you can bring in some research, bring in some scientific projects for them to do. and. Right they can start to, like, open this whole new world right. to them. And the younger right. kids are like, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, th- and it's interesting. The other thing that is, the other big developmental marker the that in the second plane is that children become very acutely aware of a sense of morality and justice. Mm. They're very, they're, it's not, it's, it would be too much to say that they become rule-bound because that's, like, a particular approach to how you might answer moral questions. But they become very interested in fairness and and justice and rules. I mean, the, the the joke that I always tell, and this is a, a, not a joke, but a real story, uh, supervising some of the lower elementary children this summer, uh, they are big fans of playing soccer. They always want to play soccer. Yeah, soccer's and they, cool. And they know that I like to play soccer, So, and they know what my favorite team is, and they like to tease me about it and everything else. But so they would say, oh, will you let it, you know, like help us play soccer because I have to get the equipment out or whatnot. So we get it set up, and they say, okay, these are the teams. They set out the teams, and they start playing, and the ball goes out of bounds. I mean, almost immediately, the ball goes out of bounds. And then there's an argument. There's a discussion, or really an argument, uh, about who's going to throw it in, how they're going to throw it in, where they're going to throw it. And I'm sitting there, and it's hot. You know, it's 90 degrees out, whatever. And I tell them, I said, I'm going to come back when you guys are ready to play again. <laughs> and literally, I could go away for 10 minutes, and they would still be having a discussion, debate, argument about the rules. Mm-hmm. Because that's actually more important to them than the plane. That's I go purpose, out, okay. Yeah, I go out with adolescents ball goes out of bounds, somebody has a handball, like, it's just, like, let's just keep playing and having fun. Elementary children, it's all about, like, let's set the boundaries, because we want to know what that feels like. Mm. Um, and they, so that's, they also are very social at that age. They like to start doing the group work. They start to, you know, want to work with friends, as opposed to in primary, they may watch another child, or they may want to show another child, but they don't generally, I mean, maybe toward the end of mm-hmm. primary, but they generally want to, I want to do the work myself. Yeah, and they don't fully grasp the other children to be children like them yeah 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 it's it's yeah they're in the classroom they're they're other children but what what's the relationship what how do we negotiate this there's that no negotiate yeah that definitely comes later in the elementary years and that's why it's interesting lower elementary children more so you know six to nine even more so than nine to twelve but throughout that range they'll approach adults and they'll say what seems like if you, if you don't really get the developmental stage what seems like tattling so-and-so did this, or so-and-so said that, or whatever. And it's not a report that I'm upset because of this, or that hurt me. It's just a factual statement. And what they're looking for is, how is this adult reacting? What is the context? Is this something that the adult is really concerned about? Oh, then I should be concerned about it. Because they're looking for a lot of modeling. Because they're trying to understand that that moral, ethical world is a human-constructed world. And they're, they're wanting to have that independence of being a part of it so that they know, when should I be upset by the way someone treats someone else or the way someone behaves? Uh, and when should I be okay with it? And when should I say, oh, that doesn't bother me, I'm okay with that? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that as well, of that independence in the form of judgment. Which is interesting because when primary children do the exact same thing, it's like for a totally and completely different reason. Yeah. And a lot of yeah. it is, well, I don't know, you know, it depends on the ch- child, but I feel like a lot of them that come to me and do that are like, my sense of order has been disrupted mm. and everything has come to a horrible yeah, end and yeah. my like reality has been shattered because yeah. like, someone... Someone put that on the shelf in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. And like, I can't even deal because yeah. my sense of order is yeah. like, can't be flexible on this topic. Right, and then right. you, you know, but yeah. it's like a totally different... It is. It comes from a totally different place. Thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so as head of school, you 
your school has the toddler, the primary, the lower, and the upper elementaries. And the and the adolescents. Yeah. Or the junior high. They don't like to be called adolescents, but yeah. Well, sure. (laughs) But the adolescents, yeah. Um and so you give uh tours prospective families um that are looking at the lower elementary program or variety of programs, but particularly the lower elementary program. And what do you think what are the most common questions that they ask you about? Um, it's interesting. The for lower elementary tours, most often, uh, if it's if it's a new family from the outside that are not that that may be peripherally aware of what Montessori is. You know, they've heard of Montessori schools. They may just associate it with the preschool age. That's a common question. Um, they th- there's a lot of questions. I mean, we're in Orange County. There's a lot of questions about outcomes and homework and you know. Where do they go from here? And the, the kind of right. natural parent concerns. But also when they when they actually see the classroom, uh, they they wonder a lot about the the organization of the lessons and the pace of the activities. Because right. it's very unconventional to a typical elementary. A typical elementary, uh, even though there may be more um, projects and, and different things going on in the classroom, there's still nevertheless a teacher, you know, they may sit in a circle and the teacher directs the activity, or they may sit in desks and the teacher directs the activity. Or, or the teacher may even break them up into groups from time to time, but it's still teacher-directed. Mm-hmm. The notion that it's way on the other end of the spectrum, student-directed learning, where the students are choosing the work that they do and the students are choosing when to do the work, that's also a frequent question because a it's lot It's hard of, to wrap your head around it. Yeah, it is. And a lot of parents... It. And it, I mean, I know a lot of primary teachers say that, you know, uh, when you tour a family for primary, they say, oh, those are great kids, but my child could never you know, be that disciplined or coordinated or whatever. And then bring them to, and me. then in a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> yeah. once the child normalizes, then the parents are shocked and amazed that in fact, the child fits into the classroom just fine. The same thing happens in elementary. They, they aren't, they have this, it's a different fear. The fear isn't that the child is going to be unable to concentrate in the way that we see primary children doing their, their fear is that my child will be making poor choices. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll just want to draw comic books all day. He won't want to do math lessons. Mm-hmm. They don't realize how enticing something like racks and tubes is, or they don't realize how enticing it is to do the bead chain right. and skip counting or like, and things oh, like that. Or like, oh, your child is interested in drawing comic books? Fantastic. Like, yeah. we already know, like, one portal to, ha- right. to, to how access to get, yeah. your child's so, interest yeah, so and, your like, child, yeah, all so, these right. beautiful other things. Right, right. So right. They, they have a fear that it's given how much freedom of choice there is, uh, that the student is not going to be choosing the content that, and and it really is. It's unfortunately, I don't know how to twist the metaphor, the the race to the top, race to the bottom, whatever. But it's like a race to get uh, the standards and outcomes pushed as low into the childhood age as possible, right. which I really resist because I I think I mean I used to joke that Montessorians or Laporte or whatever we should we should adopt the slogan that we treat your children like human beings. Right, which means that we don't think of them as little aliens that need to be uh, uh, micromanaged. You know, yeah, micromanaged, or that, or that they should be taking home hours and hours of work in a way that we wouldn't do if we had a job. We'd be like, "Hey, that's enough. I have a life. You know, I, I need to, I need to put this aside." Uh, and that, and that also, they need to have that freedom. They don't need to be handheld or micromanaged or programmed in a way that they actually can make good choices within the range of what choices they should be making. Right. Um, well, when we started talking, you were talking about these qualities that you saw in your in good students. Right. Those qualities don't come from um, teacher-directed... I mean, they can, but they, they don't typically yeah. come from teacher-directed, heavily teacher-directed classrooms where children rotate between activities. Right. And, 
now we're done with math, so we have to do this. And if you didn't get it, like, too bad, we're yeah. moving on. And yeah. um, that's not where you get those kind of outcomes. But it's very scary, I think, to a lot of parents to let go of what yeah. they know doesn't give them the outcome they want, right. but what they're used to. Right. And one of the, and it's interesting, I, I mean, this is just a pet theory of mine. I mean, it's something where it's like that, I, I guess that academic in me thinks that this is something worth thinking about more and pushing on more and really maybe reading the literature and seeing what I can kind of come up with. But if I go just based on a certain observational approach, I, I'm really convinced that there is a sensitive period for executive function. So those executive sure. function skills that we that everyone talks about, you know, in psychology today about about planning, about self-regulation, about time management, all the things that succeed, you know, that those students in college were succeeding rather than, you know, flailing and not remembering to go to class and forgetting to do their work, et cetera. Those skills that they have of being able to budget their time, uh, plan their work, know when they can go have fun, know when they have to go to work, et cetera. All of those things, it's interesting because there's a lot of there are a lot of adults who don't have that, and there's a whole cottage industry of books and and guides and and consultants that will help train people in that. And I think about that, and I and I've always compared that to the sensitive period for language. You know, with Laporte, we have immersion classrooms, and I always think, okay, this is such an awesome thing because at those earliest ages, and all the all the you know cognitive neuroscientists sort of have confirmed this, even though educators have known it just from observation. You expose a child to those languages before the age of six at the sensitive period, those dual language households or those dual language classrooms, the children pick up all the phonemes, they pick up all those things, and it's not it's effortless for them. It's not work. We as adults want to go learn a foreign language. And it's, it's effortful. A lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's very effortful, right? And it's something that as, you know, I think the best, uh, and I think even Montessori talks about this, that the formation of those sounds will never quite be native, right? Yeah, that, they'll never learn another language like they learn Yeah, their like they learn tongue. their mother tongue, right? And and it's because no matter how much you listen to it, no matter how long you live in another country, uh, even of, of sympathetic countries, like a, a romance language country, you move from France to Spain, you know, they'll always know that you're that you're French if you're speaking Spanish or, or vice versa, uh, let alone something as radically different as a tonal language versus a non-tonal language, etc., that the kids can get at that age because they have that their brain is is doing that. I think the same thing exists for executive function. Those those successful life skills, which are really successful educational skills, in the late childhood to adolescent period, the the time at which we're trying to introduce students in elementary to uh, soft failure, I call it. Like they give them the chance to to try things out on their own, exert that cognitive independence and planning independence, and fail, get feedback, learn from it. You know, iteratively make those changes. I see students pick up those skills in what, what appears to be less effortful. It may mm-hmm. still be effortful, but it, you know, so that's maybe it's not a pure sensitive period in the kind of developmental way, but it's a lot different from having to pick up a self-help book at Barnes and Noble and teach yourself to know how to plan your time, right? right. Where, where adults, <laughs> when they do this, are like, man, I need an app for that. Or I need, I need a, an assistant they to keep me, you know, can't. they just can't. And, and yeah. students, you know, some of them just can't, but when they're given the right tools and when they're given the right assistance and guidance, it becomes, it comes to them so much quicker. Yeah, well, and you see that even with third year primary students, you, you know, the first two years, you're like, I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and they joke a lot that primary teachers never, oftentimes never see the kind of work they put into the child because yeah. 
it shines It blooms through. in elementary. It blooms yeah. in elementary. Yeah. And so we just like don't know. But yeah. sometimes you see it in the third year and you see these executive functioning skills coming out and you, yeah. and it's like, who is that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my goodness. They like, maybe they could just like plan the whole day for right. us. Like right. they really right. are grasping how things work on yeah. a fundamental level and yeah. like organizing themselves thusly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it is interesting. So I think that that's something that that's what I, when I would think that, you know, students were, were fully cooked. It's not that they couldn't acquire those skills when they were 18 to 21 it's just year much old. Harder. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it really takes a, a deliberate effort rather than something that you're in the right environment and you're exposed to the right kinds of uh, questions, situations, et cetera, which is really what that prepared environment of late childhood adolescence looks like. Uh, in the Montessori environment, adolescents, for example, get a lot of chance of taking on big work, right? Mm -hmm. Doing projects. Um, undertaking significant uh, time chunks, months-long projects, those are the kinds of things that expose you. That's, in a, in a sense, a cognitively prepared environment that gives you the chances to either succeed or fail at that and then get the right feedback in that so that you can improve those skills in the same way that, I mean, it's it's like a control of error except in a in a cognitive way rather than in, in a purely sensorial, you know, with the, like the cylinder blocks. It's built into the material with, you know, the, the pink tower, it's it's built into the child's perception. Ultimately, you want to build that into their cognitive apparatus, the way that they think about the world so that they can see those effects and then reflect on them. It's like built into their existence, yeah, their living yeah, existence or how yeah. they experience so it. That they're, so that they're sort of, I mean, it's kind of like they're, they're constantly troubleshooting their own thought processes, which is, yeah. which is, you know. That would be great. Yeah, if everybody did that, like what a world, right? I mean, it would be great if everybody could do that, yeah. So what do you think, the children coming through your lower elementary program, what, I mean, this is maybe a difficult question, but what do you hope for most for them? Like what, if, you know, if they get one thing out of lower elementary here, I mm -hmm. hope it's that they can or that they do or... Um, yeah, that's interesting. I would hope that they, I, I think it's the trait of finding fascination in all the aspects of the world that they haven't yet, you know, it, it's such a tragedy to me to see a child who has decided by that age, that early age, you know, nine years old, uh, that I'm just not a math person or I, I don't really like science or science isn't for me or, or, oh, history is just a bunch of dry stories, whatever, that they still have because of, and, and this, I think, you know, I, I think that the lower elementary is great at doing this because of that integrative function of the great stories and the re repetition that they get and the deeper meaning that they can gather from it each time. Um, and then the experience that they have in, in the work that they do, that those things are still fun and fascinating um, in the way that if, you could if that could persist to adulthood, that, yeah, we all have to specialize at a certain point. We all have to decide our careers. We have to do things. But if you can still have that uh, flexibility and, uh, and inquisitiveness yeah inquisitiveness almost. like where where i always say you know a laporte graduate what i want for a laporte graduate is to not necessarily to know all the things but to have the tools that when in their life they ever have a choice to hey that's kind of interesting i wonder how that works or i wonder why that is that they feel completely equipped to to go and investigate it and they feel self-confident in doing so that that you know they may have only learned about one of the five senses when they were in sixth grade and taking human physiology uh, but when they later read an article uh, as a 30-year-old about something about how something tastes, 
they think, wow, that's really interesting. How does taste work? Mm -hmm. That they feel fully confident at, that they can find the right information, uh, look through that information in a meaningful way, and discern what's important to answer their question. Yeah, it's not just a fleeting, that's interesting, yeah. thought. So maybe another that their cognitive independence has been like stimulated and yeah. they're confident that yeah. they, it's been opened up. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like a they, yeah the kind of cliche of lifelong learning, right? You know, but sure. but it's but it's like it's not it's not you know lifelong learning to me means that they have that uh, openness to new knowledge and the confidence that they can pursue it rather than just yeah I'm open to new knowledge but gosh how do I get it like oh that's just for smart people or whatever it's mm -hmm. a it's an openness to it and a confidence that if I put in the right effort if I do the right things which I have those tools. I will get the result that I'm, I'm looking for. And I may choose not to do that or I may not have time to do that, but it is that sense of... I'm fully of, capable of doing Right. That. It's that sense of, you know, thing, interesting things not just passing you by, but being opportunities that you get to choose, whether you pursue them or not. Um, and, and then, you know, you never know. The results of that, I think, are that uh, people can have uh, interesting lives. <laughs> You know, applications and, and, and things that they read outside of their, their chosen career that they, you know, they can pursue knowledge of the arts. They can pursue, you know, they can read uh, neurology journals on the side or something. They can do these things all while being in a completely different profession because knowledge and, and knowledge of the world is still accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know something, this is maybe slightly off topic, but something that the parents in my classroom ask me about sometimes um, or that they're concerned about is they they want their child to develop all of these skills that we think of as like high academic skills but they also want their child what they really want when you question them about it is for their child to be able to be successful in the modern workforce when they're an adult yeah, um, yeah. and then we talk about like what that means and what that look like looks like and how um, the workplace is changing um, and so I think that these skills that you're talking about and like becoming a lifelong learner and learning how to um, be sure of themselves and be able to find the information that they need and kind of be project oriented, yeah. those are all the kind of skills that we're looking for yeah. in um, employees today, yeah. or citizens of the yeah. modern workplace. And, and it's interesting because it, it extends, uh, you know, I had a conversation with some parents, uh, elementary and, and adolescent age parents. And it extends even beyond that. I mean, just to say a little piece on the adolescent development, the, the, that next plane of development, yep. they they then start to turn inward. It's like a second toddlerhood, a lot of Montessorians say. Yes, that, it's the you know, mirror of yeah, their, yeah, their bodies start growing really rapidly. They become awkward and clumsy again. But it's now not functional independence. It's, it's well, it is actually. It's kind of another functional it's independence. Emotional. Yeah, and, and they turn inward, and it's a lot about self-development, valorization of the personality that they really are looking to who now that I've gathered in kind of my elementary years I know lots and lots about the world and I now have confidence to go gather knowledge about that the question is what about knowledge about me who, who am, am I? I who am I and where do I fit Help in Help me find myself yeah and and those skills as those are cultivated in Montessori classrooms that translates to me when you talk to parents about what they want for their children of course they want your they want their children to have successful relationships. They want their children to have to have happy families. They want their children to have all those things. Well, those are all built on that foundation of confidence in self and 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 a, like a comfort with, you know, in your own skin so to speak that you know who you are and what you value and you can identify that in other people. 
And that, I mean, and I think to me, that's the basis of successful adult relationships that all of us want for our children. I mean, why would we not want that? We want them to have that success and not feel the pain or the, you know, the trauma or whatever of not being successful, just as in they want to be successful in a career. They also want the children to be successful, you know, in, in, in the other aspects of their life. Yeah. And their interpersonal yeah. relationships and in really all aspects of their life. Yeah. Um, and so there are, there's like a piece of each of those in the different, in the different developmental stages of childhood. Yeah. Um, which is really cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and then you have the economic independence of the fourth plane that yeah. these days merges on yeah, into yeah. a non-existent fifth plane. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, I should sure. let you go to your head of school duties, yeah, yeah. but thank you so much for letting me come and interview oh, you. Oh, yeah. And, um, Definitely. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Eric Daniels. Next time on the podcast, I'm going to interview another head of school who is also AMI elementary trained, and so we'll go more in depth with the elementary curriculum. Also, Montessori Moment is now available in the podcast section of iTunes. So if you haven't found it there yet, I encourage you to check it out. You can subscribe, which will automatically download new episodes. And you can also rate and review, which would help give me feedback about what you're interested in hearing about. Um, You could also leave any questions. If you want to email me questions or suggestions, you can also reach me at estrong at laporteschools.com.